You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the show. If you're an avid podcast listener, you might have your own custom settings that make your listening experience more enjoyable. Maybe you prefer listening in the car instead of headphones, or speeding through episodes at one and a half times the speed. Regardless of our own peculiarities, though, we're all coming from the same base set of human ears. But how much do we know about the different types of ears or auditory receptors that exist in nature. That's exactly what we're going to be covering today. Natasha Matra is a Canadian research chair in invertebrate neurobiology, and she researches insect hearing at Western's Department of Biology. Natasha joined the show to discuss the variety of hearing techniques that have developed in nature, as well as how both human and insect cultures continue to find new innovative ways to make sounds. Let's go. Let's start with humans. We have these big heads and large features. What advantages does that grant us with hearing? Oh, that's funny. So lots of animals out there hear and make sounds and want to hear sounds. It's not completely specific to humans, but humans certainly have it. And an important thing that we have with our size is that basically our heads are big enough and thick enough that sounds actually take some time to travel across them and they get attenuated when they travel across them, which means that a sound coming from your left arrives for, you know, discernibly sooner at your left ear than at your right ear. And it's also attenuated a little bit at your left ear compared to your right ear. And you can actually use this cue to basically tell where the sound is coming from. So the fact that we have a big head helps. A cricket, on the other hand, you know, can't do the same thing. Why are humans unable to regenerate hearing? We see in some bird species that it's possible for them to actually heal damaged ear cells. But what's holding us back? Why can't we repair hearing in the ear as if it were a broken leg? Kind of a mystery. So there are cells inside our ears called outer hair cells and inner hair cells. And it turns out that in mammals, once these die, they never regenerate. Uh, In other animals like birds, even if the cells die, they're able to regenerate and they're able to basically recover some of the, their lost function. Mammals just doesn't happen. It's not entirely clear why, but what's interesting is that we're kind of developing therapies, which you know aren't quite there yet, but they're developing therapies for regenerating human hearing loss. And the way we're finding what might be important for this regeneration doesn't come from studying other mammals or birds, it actually comes from studying these single-celled animals, well, animals, I say animals quite loosely in this case, that live in the ocean called coanoflagellates. It's a small group and the whole animal looks a little bit, if you look at it carefully, like the hair cells in our ears. And they obviously regenerate parts of their body when they break off and we're kind of starting to learn a few things from them and use those things to try and regenerate hair cells 
so far in a Petri plate, but with some luck for all the rock aficionados out there in the future in our own ears as well. It's the only sense that we can recover so far in a meaningful way for humans, but we don't do it that great yet. There's a long way to go. Can you give us a few examples of the different types of auditory receptors that exist out there? Okay, so insects have a bazillion, no, not a bazillion, but a lot of different ears. So insects, for instance, have evolved ears 17 different times. So 17 independent evolution of ears. And they literally have ears everywhere on their body. Wow. You know, the crickets that I study have them on their, basically just below their elbow on their front legs. Then locusts, which I also study, have them on the side of their abdomen. Moths have them at the base of their wings. Lacewings have them in a vein of their wings. But my favorite ear, so there's a, there's a moth whose ear is basically in it. The stuff it used to chew stuff. The most important thing for making an ear for insects is that you need an air cavity. And if you ever looked inside an insect, insects are just full of air cavities. They have, uh, so they basically breathe, unlike us, using um, these pipes that trachea that run through their bodies. We have lungs, right? So we have a closed system. They have an open system. So there's like air cavities all over them. And they also have these neurons, basically, that, that they use to sense where their body parts are and how they're moving and how they're doing. And they can just repurpose one of those air cavities plus one of those proprioceptive neurons and make the ear. And as it happened, ears just popped up everywhere on insects. Recently, I had Graham Thompson on and we, we were talking about the trade-offs, the way humans communicate versus the way bees communicate. And this gives me uh, a similar feeling in that, you know, we have this great equilibrium but we, we lack the ability to develop ears wherever we please. It, yeah, it would be nice to have a few spare, right? Are there any other examples where humans appear to be at a disadvantage when compared with how other species receive auditory cues? We're better in some ways or worse in some ways. So the way we're better is that we can hear a very large spectrum of sounds. So, you know, my ear can hear up from like the low 20 hertz, so 20 cycles a second, all the way up to 17 kilohertz, the last time that I checked. So I've lost everything. Humans are typically supposed to hear from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. I hear it up to about 17. So I've lost like the top three kilohertz of my hearing. And that's basically where we start losing hearing from, the high frequencies. And I can hear everything in that range. If you look at an insect, it can usually hear in a fairly narrow range of frequencies. And the reason for that is that's the narrow range of frequencies its mates call in, and they're not interested in everything else. But some insects can also hear in the ultrasound. So ultrasound is defined on the basis of human hearing, as most things are. So anything above 20 kilohertz is called ultrasound, and we can't hear anything up there. If we could, you'd notice like a huge cacophony of sounds being passed around the natural environment in that sort of frequency range. And that's because bats use those frequencies for echolocating. And therefore, because the bats are catching them, the insects also have to hear it in order to evade the bats. So they can do those things, which we can't. Yeah, okay. So that's like the dog whistle, which, you know, barely registers on the human ear, if at all. Yep. But sparks this insane reaction in dogs whenever you blow it. Is there anything comparable to us to what a dog might be hearing when we blow that whistle for them? Maybe like nails and a chalkboard or something like that. Yeah. I have no idea. 
Spiders, possibly unbeknownst to some of our listeners, use their web as an extension of their senses. And what really makes it fascinating is that they can change the properties of their web to optimize it for themselves, like tuning a guitar. Can you give us an example of what characteristics of the web a spider might change in order to facilitate receiving a certain type of information? It's a simple thing. Um, You probably tune or seen someone tune a guitar, right? When you loosen the string and you pluck it, it sounds lower pitched, you tighten it, it goes higher pitched, right? And spider webs like that. So um, if it tightens its web up, they can do that. What they'll hear is anything that's kind of flapping at a high frequency or a small insect that gets stuck in the web that moves really fast. And if it is loose, they could, they wouldn't really perceive that small insect as well, but they'd perceive something that was bigger. So, you know, a hungry spider might go around tightening its web up in order to even like accept small prey, but Mm. something that's well fed might say, oh, I'm not interested in something that's very small, so I loosen my web up so it best picks up large enough prey for me. So that's one thing, one way they can tune their web for their needs. Yeah, and I know you've done some work looking at the posture of a spider. And so how does it compound its ability to perceive information with its stance? So this is kind of fun, right? Like you think about, oh, a spider can make a web and it can change its web properties to pick something up. But then that's kind of a slow process. You want to, if the spider wanted to do something fast, what could it do? One of the fun things that it can do that is completely just a physical property is it can change its posture. So it turns out then vibrations when they travel through things like legs will travel differently if the leg is kind of straight and extended and differently if the leg is bent. So what happens when the leg is bent, the more bent it is, higher frequencies don't travel through it as much. So you filter out anything high frequency, but you can hear low frequencies and vice versa. So basically what a spider can do is change how much its leg is bent to determine what frequencies get to its sensory organs. And it can use, therefore it can use its posture, which is basically how it holds its body and how its legs are bent, to filter out or filter in different vibrations that it's interested in. It's kind of cool, right? Like you have an extended phenotype plus an embodied phenotype. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a lot about how sounds or auditory information is received But what about how sounds are made? So how does an animal like the tree cricket amplify its own voice to make itself more attractive to potential mates? The way they do that basically is they have modified four wings. So you've probably seen the wings of a fly, you've probably seen the wings of a beetle. Cricket wings are really different. They're a little bit closer to maybe beetle wings. The front two wings are very hard and they can be flipped up so that they're standing on edge. Then the cricket has specialized sort of modifications of the wing that allow it to scrape one wing against the other and make the two wings vibrate, sort of like a board vibrating. And that is what makes the sound that you hear. Now, the funny thing about crickets is they're very small and small things are actually very inefficient at making sounds. And the the reason for that is uh, basically something called acoustic short circuiting. So sounds coming out of the wings interfere with each other and therefore cancel each other out. But there is a way to deal with this. And actually humans have been using this way to deal with it for a very long time. So we make what's called a baffle. 
And in the human case of baffles, you know, have you, have, have you ever seen a speaker naked? But mostly when you get a speaker, it's in a box. So the box acts as a baffle. The box prevents acoustic short circuiting from happening. It turns out that crickets invented it way before we did. So what crickets do is they kind of make themselves not a box, but a plane, which acts as a baffle. So they'll go up to a leaf, they'll chew a hole in it right in the center, and they'll put their wings against the hole and sing from that. And that prevents a whole bunch of acoustic short circuiting and makes them louder than they were just on their own. And the loudest one gets their pick of the mates. Yeah, females seem to like the louder males. They also, I mean, there's also just the simple advantage from reaching further, right? Mm. So you have you have the likelihood of reaching more females than somebody who's calling softer than you. The bridges between rock and roll and sex appeal across all species of life is really incredible. <laughs> well, yeah, I always think of actually more like Kevin and Hobbes than rock and roll when I think about cricket singing. You know, people listen to you when you're louder than everyone else. Yeah, that's a good quote. And is baffling something that tree crickets are born knowing to do? Uh, it seems like it. It seems like it's a behavior that's hardwired. And there's different reasons for thinking this. One is that it's an extremely widespread behavior in that group of crickets, so in the Ikantians, but outside of them, no other uh, crickets, like other groups of crickets, like the Inoctarians or Grillids, they don't do it. So only this one group of crickets does it. And it's, at least we have some observations that uh, animals that have basically mortal into adulthood, which is the only time they sing, can do it without ever observing anyone else doing it. So it's pretty good evidence that it's a hardwired inherited behavior. That's surprising because that, that's quite a resourceful process. I certainly don't think of insects as knowing how to use tools in the same way that chimpanzees do, but no, that's impressive. There's an increasing realization that more tools than we, than we appreciate have some inherited component. So birds, which are pretty famous now for tool use, it's the more we investigate it, you see that there is an inherited component to that tool use that it is widespread within certain groups of birds. It's not what that kind of tool use is not widespread, but among other birds, which would equally, you know, be equally advantageous for them to have it. But it sort of seems to occur only in this group, which suggests a fairly strong inherited component. No, that's cool because you mentioned how, how speakers are boxed and although most likely wasn't directly inspired by tree crickets and baffling, the more we learn about the tools that are out there, the more we can take away from it, right? And apply it to ourselves. Oh, absolutely. So there are people who make, say, microphones inspired by insect ears. There is also someone who's made a small mem speaker that is inspired by cricket wings. So definitely bioinspiration is a very important reason why we should be studying these guys. A portion of your research looks at the types of vocal manipulation that exist across different human cultures. I'm going to play a clip now of the Kume singing style, which you helped conduct a study on in Toronto. So explain to us what makes this singing style, this vocal technique, so unique. What's unique about the Kume style of singing is that it's basically biphonal. So these people 
while they're singing can produce two notes at the same time. Now, what is a note is a fairly complicated, uh, like when you, it comes down to it, it's actually a pretty complicated concept, but basically what our, our sounds produce, our voices produce, our sing or produce a sound, what we do is we produce something that we call a ladder of tones. So we usually have the bass frequency or the F0, and then we have integral multiples of that bass frequency. So if I'm speaking, um, I'm, say about 100 hertz, uh, I'll produce 100 hertz, 200 hertz, 300 hertz, 400 hertz, 500 hertz. And there's a certain sort of pattern at which I'll produce each of these frequencies. And that's basically what a, what a normal voice sounds like. So it will sound all, even though I've got these other notes on, you know, other frequencies on top of my bass note, it'll all sound like one pitch to another human. But when these guys are singing, you hear two distinct pitches, like a nice low rumble and a whistling pitch on top of it. The whistling pitch carries the melody and the rumble stays the same. And it's, it's a really sort of dissociating, bizarre sound to hear. When I first looked it up and heard it, I didn't really know what to think. Yeah, kind of it was a mystery, A, how they produce it. And, well, why do we hear two pitches? Because, yeah, what, what, what's going on? So we did, maybe this was mainly Christopher Bergevin's work. It was at York University in Chandan and, and Brad's story, and I had a little bit to do with it. But mainly what we found was that the tubans can manipulate their vocal track in very specific ways. They make two strong constrictions while singing, one in the front of their mouth, just uh, near with their uh, tongue behind the teeth, and one much deeper in the vocal track, like right at the bottom of it, just above the vocal cords. And basically what they do is they change the shape of the resonant cavities that their sound is coming out of, and therefore change the relative levels of the low pitches and the high pitches. And they really seem to focus a lot of energy coming out of the mouth around about one and a half kilohertz. And this is the melody or the whistly pitch in it. And the other rumble stays the same. And because the two are so different in frequency, so the, the low pitch sound that you hear is about 50 to 100 hertz, and the, the high pitch sound is so far away from that, it's 1.5 kilohertz, it's about 15 times higher you actually end up hearing these two things as distinct sounds. And they can also change the position of the high-pitched high uh, resonant uh, formant, as we call it. And then because they're changing it, that sounds like a melody and it separates itself even more from the low pitch that they produce. And that's why you hear that biphonated two-voice sound. The only comparison I could think of when I saw it was uh, sometimes when you see old Robin Williams footage and he's doing like 15 voices in 20 seconds and it's just <laughs> rapid fire, him changing the sounds coming out of his throat and he's doing this. But this is perfectly in sync with two completely different frequencies coming out at the same time. It's, it's really strange, uh, but it's cool. Yeah, we called it vocal gymnastics. When you did this research, did you fly them out here and bring them to basically a music studio or... Um, so as it happened, they were touring and they were in Toronto. So uh, 
Chris jumped on it and was like, oh, we should do something with it. And he got in touch with Chandan Narayan, who has a really fancy and nice fMRI machine. And they, he convinced the children soldiers to sing in the fMRI machine. So we have a video or a series of videos, both of them holding the biphonator note and of sing, going from uh, singing normally to being biphonated. So you can kind of see how their vocal tracks change as they're doing this. And then what Brad Story did was to model the whole thing. I did a little bit of 3D reconstruction in there, but the main sort of modeling the physics of it was done by Brad Story. And that was the thing that gave us the explanation of how the vocal track shape changes the notes that come out of their mouth. While we're on the topic of music, the powerful effects it can have on the human brain are well documented, but has any research been done on how music affects other mammal species? There, there are frogs that are found in China. There are frogs that are found in uh, in streams, which, you know, which are pretty noisy things. And he recorded the sounds that these frogs were making. It was kind of incredible because they made the most complex sounds we've ever recorded. And the complexity changed in time. So they'd make one note, another note, another note, another note. And there was no studio to be about like the, the pattern in, over time that, of notes they were producing. It would, it would just change constantly. And this is really different from other frogs, right? Like usually they have one note and they'll keep repeating it over and over again. You think of them making fairly stereotype calls. I mean, even bats, which have a pretty interesting repertoire, make pretty stereotype calls. But this frog was just the most complicated thing we've ever seen. And it's, it's an important and interesting question why they're doing that. I think that one answer for that, maybe that it's, um, that it's mate choice. So that females really like the most, most complicated song they hear. And I mean, jumping from frogs here to birds, we know birds do similar things as well. Like there are things that will mimic sounds. Have you seen the Attenborough clip of the lyrebird? Let's play it. He can imitate the calls of at least 20 different species. And now the sounds of foresters and their chainsaws working nearby. been listening to loggers chop trees down so it makes it mimics the call of the buzz saw they mimic the sound of a motor motor winder and a camera and then the sound of that plus the shutter they mimic a car alarm like they basically go out there listen to sounds and just like pick them up and just produce these songs that are just incredibly complex repertoires of strange sounds they've heard and again, we think it's a mate choice thing. It's like females like animals, males who can produce like the most very complicated, eclectic collection of sounds. Let's end here. I moved to Canada when I was five and kept this weird hybrid accent into my early teens. If you hear audio of my voice at 12, it's kind of a miracle. I have a podcast now. But I don't remember ever changing my voice deliberately. Can the average person expect their voice to change significantly through subconscious manipulation during their lifespan? 
yes. Certainly, uh, I mean, one thing you can think of immediately is when you're afraid of something, your voice tends to go higher pitched. It just happens. Right. Or if you're lying. Or if you're lying, or which is you know usually connected to you're afraid. If you're being forceful, your voice, like if you're screaming at someone, your voice changes. If you're being gentle with them, it changes. Uh, but also, I mean, accents change. I've, so... I mean, it's funny you should mention England. I, I lived there for a few years. And what happened was I had some problem with my bank account there and I had to call them up on the phone. And I was speaking to them and I could hear myself adopt like a Southwest accent. So I used to live in Bristol. And I, I could hear myself change the way I spoke so that the person on the phone would understand me better. Current term for that is code switching. That's the uh, academic term, switching? Code switching is you change the way you speak, you know, you know, in order to fit into a certain environment, a social milieu, or perhaps like an international context. We all probably do it a little bit, but some of it is conscious, some of it is unconscious. That's a really thought-provoking note for us to end on. I wish we had more time, but thanks so much for coming on, Natasha. Take care. That concludes another episode of Western Science Speaks. Survival for any species necessitates having auditory receptors that can alert danger or food at a moment's notice. But we've learned today just how different ears can look across nature. Whether it be frogs that have ears in their mouths or the finely tuned auditory fortress calibrated by spiders, hearing devices can come in all shapes and sizes. And just when you think you've heard it all, something like the Kume singing style comes along to let us know that we're nowhere near done exploring the possibilities of our own spectrum of sound. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can check out more at Western U Science on Spotify and Apple, as well as the Western Science website. Just look up Western Science Speaks. We're the top Google result. That's all for today. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.